Tech Sounds presents The Conscious Capitalists. Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism Movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our latest edition of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner, making the world a better place through business, Raj Lasodia. Hey, Raj. Hey, Timothy. I, I like those new eyeglasses. Those are pretty cool. Oh, thank you. Of course, we're on the podcast, so nobody will see this, but thanks. Take my word for it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, today we have an old friend. Dove Seidman, who's been involved with conscious capitalism in one way or another as a speaker, as a supporter for a good 10 years plus, almost from the beginning. Now, Dove's special because he's an entrepreneur, CEO, author, and teacher. He's the founder and chairman of the Howe Institute for Society, a global nonprofit, nurtures the culture of moral leadership. And we'll talk a lot about that principal decision making and values based behavior that enables individuals and institutions to meet the profound social and economic technological changes 21st century so we'll jump into a lot of that as importantly he's also the founder and chairman of lrn one of the leading global ethics and compliance management companies and he's written an incredible book that has been out for a while but is still a classic and still one that i recommend all the time as one of the key ones you got to read it's a new york times bestseller how why how we do anything means everything and besides that, he's a Harvard law grad, an Oxford law grad, and from UCLA, where he majored in moral philosophy. And that'll be a key thing that we're going to come back to. Dove, welcome to our show. Uh, Timothy, and I've become accustomed to calling you Tim, so I hope that's okay. Tim and Raj, it's nice to be uh, reconnected meaningfully on your show. Brilliant. Well... You know, I said it's a seminal book, and I really think it is um, a really important book. Um, so tell us a little bit about the origin of that book. Why did you write that book? And what do you think um, has changed? Those two questions, really, why did you write it? And then second, I want to come back and say, what's changed since you wrote it? So why did I write it? I, I, I felt compelled to write it. Uh, given that I was leading uh, an ethics and compliance global firm, and I was doing it in the context where bosses would say to their underlings, just do it, I don't care how. Mm -hmm. um, it, it was the just do it era. You know, that was the that was the prevailing ethos, just do it. Now, don't get caught doing something stupid like hiring child labor, or uh, money laundering, but other than that, just do it. Get it to me by Friday, I don't care how. Now, I studied philosophy, as you mentioned, and philosophically, that always felt unsound uh, and misguided, but the climate around me was just do it, and uh, I don't care how. And that um, felt dissonant to me with anything, with everything I ever studied. Um, but I also noticed that we had denigrated the how. How are you, buddy? How's it going? There's a financial crisis. Uh, 
how much stimulus do we need? Uh, one, you know, a, a, a trillion, two trillion, three trillion. But we didn't talk about the how of stimulus or the how. And uh, we treated how as an adverb or an adjective. How are you, buddy? How's it going? How many clicks? How many page views? How much revenue? How much market share? And to me, the way I studied it, the how is uh, is a noun. It's uh, it's a word that stands for something deep, an ethic of human endeavor, an ethos that animates how we operate, how we relate to others, how we treat others, how we foster community, how we forge deep connections with our stakeholders. So I set about to restore the status of how in the marketplace and, and, and in society that it's a thing. Uh, they get their hows right. You can measure the how. And uh, mm. I believe that if we devoted time, resource, and attention and leadership focus how, we would build um, organizations that thrive in the marketplace by doing things the right way. And that we would do it as a source of creating value and competitive advantage. And um, but truth be told, one of my uh, teachers who was and mentors who I was blessed to have as a teacher uh, was Professor Elie Wiesel. And he wrote many books. The most known was Night. And he was fond of saying that I write not to be understood, but so as to understand. And I wrote how well into my business career when I felt the need to pause and deepen my thinking, to round it out, to complete my thinking, and and kind of put everything, uh, the combustion of philosophy and my legal studies that I had with the rough and tumble world, from boardrooms mm. to shop floors in different countries around the world. And I felt that how was really a framework um, and uh, a practical philosophy that was born out of the dialectic between uh, the philosophical ethos and, and framework that animated my life's work um, and my interaction with the real world and what it's like to lead an organization, but what it's like to lead an organization that works with other organizations in the spirit of helping them foster do-it-right corporate cultures that win in the marketplace. I love that. And, and I think that one of the things that that has always been so strong about the point of view you've had is practical philosophy. Let's begin with values. Let's begin with purpose. Why do we exist? Why does this company exist? What are our values? And how do leaders walk the talk on that, which you've now pushed as sort of the moral leader yeah. that you develop. And to me, it's, you know, that absolutely resonates with what we talk about at Conscious Capitalism. And and I'm really curious, in the time since you've written the book, in your mind, what has changed? What, what, Where has the world gone? Are we getting better at some of those things or not? Yeah. Well, that's, you know, the president of Ireland a few years back gave a national address, uh, Michael Higgins, that the whole country should start studying philosophy. Uh, mm -hmm. And if not, their economy and their uh, having vibrant um, democracy and dynamic capitalism uh, would be thwarted because we're living at a time where we are dealing with uh, philosophical issues uh, in the workplace, for example. and in, But we're also living at a time where the world has been so fused, where social, religious, biological, ethical, human, geopolitical, political, uh, and moral issues that were typically uh, considered as outside of the business 
agenda. Externalities, if you will, are now inescapably mm. part of it because um, mm. everything has kind of fused and come together and the pandemic only accelerated uh, all the ways in which the world um, has gone from connected to interconnected to hyperconnected to interdependent. More than mm. ever, every day we get examples that with one yeah. video that shows up viscerally on your iPhone or one tweet uh, or one protest or one video uh, of a corporate town hall where the CEO is in a spirit of showing empathy, showing anything but uh, yeah. just sees the light yeah, a few of, day of those. <laughs> Yeah, well, daily. <laughs> so um, in this kind of fused world, um, how matters? Now, how has always mattered, but I think it matters more than ever and in ways it never has before. So that's changed. Um, but let's go back to philosophy, because first of all, I admire uh, you, Raj, and Tim for your early and explicit devotion to conscious capitalism, that there is a way to promote and pursue and be a capitalist uh, that's more not only conscious, but more enlightened. And around there's conscious capitalism, responsible capitalism, creative capitalism. Uh, and I call those um, transitional language, right? We're going into the heart, into the core of what we uh, cherish, capitalism, democracy, healthy communities. And we're, put, we're, we're pulling out its ethical or moral core, right? Human capital management. What was it before? Monster capital management, social impact investing. What was it before? Anti-impact investing. Um, but it's telling us something, that we want to reconnect with uh, the core of something, and we're trying to build a bridge to where we're going. Now, I have a word for that. It's called, uh, let's instead of doing capitalism 1.0, or with all due respect, even conscious capitalism, let's reread Adam Smith. When he wrote The Wealth of Nations, which is the treatise of modern-day capitalism, he was the chairman of the Moral Philosophy Department at Glasgow University. He was a moral philosopher. His first seminal book was The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And, and capitalism is a theory of organizing an economy and a marketplace, frankly, with uh, guardrails against our, our proclivities towards excess, even, even greed. Uh, but really trying to do the right things the right way by putting uh, trust and, and morality and moral sentiments, including looking out for the poor, uh, at the center. So my view of conscious capitalism is to go back and do capitalism 1.0, Adam Smith's conception, moral capitalism, if you will, and let's do it the right way. And let's take account of all the ways in which we've maybe perverted it or or gone astray from it. And um then revive it because I am a full-blown capitalist if we do it the right way. I love that. And I love that. And it's one of the things that Raj and I have been involved in debating. And we had one guest on, David Sloan Wilson, who's an evolutionary biologist. And, and, you know, it was an interesting discussion because at the one hand, it said, listen, our ec current economic system is based on an ideology from the 19th and 20th century with a bunch of assumptions yeah. made about humans and human behavior. We know more today than we've ever known about human motivation, human happiness, and about evolutionary biology in terms of what kind of communities or groups thrive yeah. and which ones don't. So it's fascinating yeah. that much of what is sort of economic principles is yeah. based on ideas that are either not 
transparent and debated. Are these moral? Are they good for us, et cetera? Nor are they based on any of the science that yeah. we've got. And so I'm really curious that as we get into this discussion about, you know, the underpinnings of capitalism and of our economy, yeah. that we're not going to this discussion of, listen, yeah. economies See, are for society. We want thriving societies. And what economics makes an economy, ought to support that. Yeah. If Tim, that, that resonates. And if you think of what makes an economy, what is an economy? An economy is you look at the currency of an economy. Uh, what are the prevailing jobs? How is value created? Uh, what work is getting done in an economy? And I, I can put the evolution in from in an economic terms. You know, in the industrial age, when we were industrializing, we hired hands, but we hired brawny, strong hands. We wanted very healthy, strong factory workers to industrialize and put up bridges, right? And skyscrapers and elevators to, to the sky. And then we uh, evolved into the uh, knowledge economy uh, where we hired heads, not just hands, heads. Uh, but we didn't hire for ignorance. We hired for smarts and expertise and knowledge and specialization. Uh, and, and then, but now we're entering what I call uh, the human economy. And Raj, you've written extensively about the heart and humanity and the soul uh, of business by putting humanity at its center. And one of the reasons we're entering the human economy is increasingly machines and now generative AI are being programmed to do the next thing right. But only a human being can do the next right thing. And in the human economy, we are hiring hearts. Now, hearts are capable of outrage and rage and some you know, nefarious inclinations, but hearts are also capable of care and empathy uh, and ethics, doing the right thing. Um, and creativity and dreaming. So what makes us human at our best is mm -hmm. our capacity to be elevated, um, to be empathetic, to collaborate with others uh, as we shape our future uh, for the better. And I think that we are entering what I call a human economy. Uh, mm -hmm. And it takes a certain type of leader and leadership to touch the heart and elevate and if I had to give you a proof point of this, do you mind if I could give you one that is, uh, might strike you? No, 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 don't give us any proof points. We just want to take your word. At it. Well, <laughs> no, no, but give I'll us give some you, proof points, though. <laughs> I think you both would agree that the advertising and marketing departments of big companies, what is their job? They are, nobody's better than them at telling us uh, the zeitgeist, the time we're in, or hitting the social and or societal nerve of, of any issue, okay? And why is Chevron the human energy company and Cisco the human network and Dow the human element and Deer human flourishing and Allied Bank is uh, let's speak human and TD Bank is let's bank human and Reebok is let's be more human and I can go on and on. One company after another is proclaiming to the world, work here, invest in us, buy from us because of our humanity. And, and some of them are using the word human explicitly and others are saying sustainability uh, trust, values, the things that make us human, because they know that the business of business is no longer just business, that the business of business is society, that the business of business is personal, it's human. And it's one thing to proclaim your humanity, which is happening day in, day out. And it's another thing to translate that proclamation into policies and practices and an ethos that animates how we, op how we operate. And I think that that's where we are. Now, 45 years ago, give or take, U.S. business and 
Japanese business were having a dispute that was philosophical at its root. Uh, the, we felt we cared about quality as much as the Japanese, which is why we put tremendous amounts of people at the end of the assembly line to inspect for bad quality so as not to release bad quality. But we felt philosophically that quality is an aesthetic. I know good quality when I see it. Let's inspect and not release the bad stuff. The Japanese had a different philosophical view. We could be disciplined and systematic about quality, design it in uh, to our culture and our, and our DNA. And then they bought Pebble Beach and Rockefeller Center. Turns out that they were thriving in business and we were not, and they were right. And what's the first thing uh, American companies did? You want to take a guess? I oh, gave I you a clue. I gave world. you a clue with my last <laughs> example. They advertised quality is job one. Oh, yeah. And then they went on a journey. <laughs> yeah, quality is job one. And then they went on a journey to translate the proclamation of quality is job one into uh, Six Sigma and Kaizen, right? And TQM. And they competed on their ability to not just say quality matters, but to do quality. So 50 years later, we're saying humanity is job one. And I think that, and I celebrate this. We're at the beginning of a new era where we understand that uh, business has to put humanity and human concerns and hopes and plights and aspirations and needs at the center and now find a way to operate and make decisions uh, with that commitment to being more human at the center. Um, and I also think that we need to take stock of the fact that the world is not just rapidly changing, it has before, I believe that it's profoundly and dramatically being reshaped. It mm. operates differently. With one swipe on my iPhone, uh, strangers are coming into intimate proximity, getting in cars and houses and masseuses can come in your house. We've never had strangers get connected so instantly and they haven't broken bread. They haven't figured out if they speak a common language and share values. We've never lived in a world where the behavior or tweet or post of one person uh, can affect so many others so far away. We've never lived in a world where we, not just with x-ray vision, but with MRI vision, we are seeing into the emails and texts and WhatsApp messages and into the mindsets and attitudes of people running organizations. And whatever we see, we can just tell the world about uh, and invite them for recrimination uh, or applause. You know, the story I like to tell to pull this all together is I think you remember, do you remember the story of the dentist from Minneapolis that flew to Zimbabwe? Because uh, he had this uh, hobby of uh, trophy killing and he killed Cecil the lion. You remember Cecil uh, the lion? I remember now. Oh, yeah. 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 All right. <laughs> so here we are talking about capitalism and business and I'm talking about Cecil the lion. But let me put this in into stark focus. Uh, he buys a ticket from Delta Airlines to fly to Zimbabwe to engage in his uh, favorite hobby. Whatever you think of, of trophy hunting, it is what it is, but that's what he did. Uh, outside of Zimbabwe, it was Cecil the lion. We humanized it, modern-day Bambi. Inside Zimbabwe, it was just a lion. Um, but after his conquest of killing Cecil the lion, he puts a picture of uh, celebrating his conquest on Facebook. And within minutes, a tsunami of moral outrage starts to encircle the world. Jimmy Kimmel, later on TV, talked about it with a tear-filled rant, and 6.5 million people 
uh, watched it. And then people went on to Yelp to put reviews that are so scathing to drive the dentist out of business. Uh, and then they published the address of his Florida vacation home and people went down there and they spray painted his garage door, a lion killer. And you're asked, and, and you're probably thinking, why is he telling this story? Well, 24 hours after this tsunami made its rounds the world around the world, 400,000 people went on to change.org and they protested Delta Airlines for their policy of allowing this dentist to fly back with his trophy kill with his trophy. Now, most business managers did not go to business school, right? They were figuring out how to manage an airline, right? To, uh, to figure out what to do, why we're supporting tourism, uh, what is our attitude towards conservation, because um, regulated trophy killing, some people think, is uh, more enlightened than just letting the letting a more ad hoc militia involved approach to this, et cetera. So we've never lived in a world where the actions of one dentist far away can hijack the corporate agenda of a management team and force it to deal with issues that it hasn't. Now, the noise was so blaring that Delta immediately just changed the policy. Okay, no more flying back with the trophy kill. 24 hours after that, do you know what happened next? Another 400,000 people went on change.org and protested them from the other side for discriminating against the legal activity of trophy killing. It wasn't fly back with drugs or illicit drugs, for example, in the belly of the airplane. And that's the world we're living in. And in this reshaped world, everything is fused, everything is interdependent, everything is amplified, and everything is accelerated. Uh, and the only way to navigate and to forge ahead is by intentionally and deliberately putting at the center of decision making of how we operate and how we lead uh, all that um, concerns us as humans uh, because we don't have a pro we don't have any other way to do this given the way in which the world has been reshaped and that story to me is just emblematic and i think you would acknowledge that every day there's some version of cecil kanye west kyrie irving you know, look at just Adidas, look at what uh, Anheuser-Busch is dealing with just this last week, right? Um, yeah. Right, with just an ad uh, connected to a very, um, you know, sensitive uh, but central issue of society, you know, yeah. gender, uh, et cetera. Wow. <laughs> the scope of your thinking, Dove, is extraordinary. So I just want to appreciate that. So, you know, you talked about moral outrage, which is very justified in, in many cases, yeah. of course, with what's going on in the world. Uh, and at the same time, there's this whole uh, conversation out there about woke, wokeness and so forth, and kind of this critique, you know, of uh, of usually morally founded positions that uh, that people take, and almost as a way of neutralizing any kind yeah. of moral impulse, you know. Yeah. So how do we deal with this whole backlash in a way? Yeah, bringing moral morality and ethics into the public discourse. Yeah. Is there a middle ground? Is there a moral clarity uh, sure. you know, that uh, we need to have? Because obviously, we can go too far sometimes, right? I mean, the moral outrage right. sometimes can be yeah. out of proportion. No, it's a, it's the, you you you're putting your finger on. You know, um, there's never been this kind of moral activation from more people. I mean, the, the truth is, more people, especially the younger or next generation more people on more days are seeing what's happening around them 
uh, through a moral lens, right and wrong, good or bad, good guy, bad guy. It just, um, and then they're being invited by the way uh, social media is constructed when they see things uh, to choose one or a zero, follow, unfollow, friend, unfriend, support, don't support. Uh, and uh, morality is all about nuance and navigating the gray and splitting fine hairs. So um, nothing is more nuanced and dimensionalized and requiring us to take account of historical perspective and different points of view than moral progress. And yet we are being invited to respond instantaneously with uh, yes or no, uh, good or bad. So on the one hand, it is what it is. Uh, there is more more moral activation than ever before and i don't and i'm going to say this and it's going to sound stereotypical but i think it'll resonate we're all i think the three of us are our parents but often we ask a younger person who has a strong moral stance why is it right i said it's right but i'm asking you why is it right it's right but why is it right it just is how do you know it is it feels right to me so the good news is more people on more days want to get things right. The bad news is that they're not yet able to articulate their claim, their stance uh, as guided by a set of deep moral principles and values that they can put on the table and talk about and see if they're shared and we want to follow the same principles. And, and that's the work that we need to do. Um, moral progress is usually three steps. It's somehow have being um, having the right kind of fiber of character or corporate character and having the right response realizing that this requires us to respond or to adapt or to apologize or do something better but if you go from that to fire this person just say you're sorry you know when we tell a child say you're sorry what are we teaching them a verbal escape route say you're sorry and get just get back to playing but what about making amends what about pausing and thinking about what's come of us that I could have done this in the first place? So the most important thing to do when you want to make progress is, is not go from a strong moral stance, even justified outrage, right to a demand. There's got to be a conversation in the middle. Let's take Cecil the lion. Okay, he killed the lion. Here's what we think about that, but he's not a terrorist. What's the difference between somebody who killed the lion and a terrorist and somebody this and that? And if we don't uh, wrestle and uh, sharpen our thinking about what we're responding to and we go from outrage to demand, we're going to get statutes to come down and people to get fired. And sometimes that's justified, but we're not going to come together and move forward together without that conversation. And I think that's the most important part. And when I'm asked around this topic, mm. uh, what's the most practical advice you could give somebody around this? I usually say the most practical advice tends to be the most counterintuitive, because I think you both would agree, as so many others, that the world is kind of always on, constantly coming at you. We're being digitally assaulted. FOMO has got us in its grip, the fear of missing out. Uh, but I have become fond of saying that the faster the world gets and the more that comes at you, the more we need to pause, to pause. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson said, in each pause, I hear the call. Nothing is more distinctly and uniquely human than our capacity to pause, 
And we teach this in our fellowship at the Howe Institute. It, I, I talk about the four R's because when we pause, we can reflect on the world we're operating in, the situation or challenge before us. We can reflect. We can reconnect with our values and principles and our conscience and our beliefs uh, or others. We can rethink our assumptions about how we've been operating or doing things and what assumptions guided us that allowed this to happen and not that to happen. And then and only then, after we reflect and reconnect and rethink, can we reimagine a better solution, a better conversation, a better outcome. So I actually think the the seat of elevated, more conscious uh, approaches is to pause. Because when we pause, we ask important questions. How would I feel like if I were treated this way? We ask the golden rule question. So I think... Uh, Today, pausing is the single most important practice uh, of any person, especially in business. And that's true because the world is coming at us so fast. And yet that is, you know, that is the thing that is in least supply in a way, right? We know we're in a constant moving world. We never have time for silence. You know, I've experienced silent retreats and it's pretty profound, you know, what you yeah. Have if, we don't if there's it. no time to pause, when are we going to find the time when we uh, create harm by not pausing or get it wrong by not pausing? It takes more time to to fix the genie that, that got out and, and put the genie back in. So, And by the way, pausing is not about time. It's not uh, pausing is about you're walking in the halls. Ask yourself while you're walking, who am I avoiding? Uh, why am I not making eye contact with that person? It doesn't take longer to pause. It's what it's. You could take your Fitbit and go take a walk in a, in a park and take your stress and anxiety with you. You're doing the walk, or you might as well ask yourself questions. Why did I use sarcasm in that meeting? Why did I? Why did I end the meeting by saying whose call is it? That's a power question. Saying whose call is it? I could have said, what do we think the right call is? It doesn't take longer to pause and say, what's the best way to end this meeting? If I say, whose call is it? I'm sending a message to the room that this is about power and who's got the ball. Take a shot. Sometimes that's justified. But the meeting has to end anyhow. It doesn't take longer to say, uh, what do we think the right call is based on our purpose and values? So pausing is about that active. Uh, you're, it's as you're doing things, you're asking the question of yourself and just making it second nature. It's a muscle that you build. Yeah. Thank you, Dove, for uh, a really thorough look at all of these issues. And thank you to our audience for joining us. And if you enjoyed today's podcast, please hit the subscription button on whatever channel you're watching. And if you want to leave a comment and a rating, go on over to Apple Podcast and iTunes and leave us your thoughts and comments there. And thank you very much to Tech Monterey for both sponsoring this and Tech Sounds for being our producer. Thank you, Dove. Thank you, Raj. Final words, Raj? No, I just want to again appreciate Dove for a masterclass, uh, you know, just the brilliant wisdom and depth and, and heart that he brings to his work. The world is a far better place uh, because of what you're doing, Dove. So thank you for that. And uh, thank you also to uh, the Conscious Enterprise Center at, uh, at Tech, which is working to bring these ideas uh, into the world as well. Thank you. Thank you.